Are you tired of being told what to think and how to act? Well, you are not alone. In case you haven't realized it, you have an internal GPS. It knows all you need to know about how to live your life. So it's about time you stopped letting the media and the government tell you what is true for you. In fact, it is exactly that time. It's time to think for yourself. And here to make sure you're doing just that is your host, mediator, author, and lawyer, Carol Gold. Hi, it's Wednesday, March 23rd. I'm Carol Gold, and welcome to Think for Yourself. I was doing just that today. I was watching the last day of the Senate confirmation hearings on the Biden nomination to fill Justice Breyer's Supreme Court seat, the questioning of Ketanji Jackson Brown. I mentioned on yesterday's podcast that I had been watching it yesterday also, and I finished up today because, as I said yesterday, it fascinates me. I'm an attorney, and I'm fascinated by all things related to the law. And, of course, this is, you know, monumentous. This is the Supreme Court. This is as high as the legal system gets within our system. And so, for me, it's both entertaining and intellectually oftentimes enlightening and sometimes disappointing. I say disappointing because yesterday, Judge Brown was asked a couple of questions that for me pretty much negated all the good that she had done throughout the 18 plus hours of questioning. She is a charming woman. She's very bright. She seems very moral. She seems very family oriented. She seems like she works really hard at her job, and she's had several positions within the judiciary at lower levels as a district court judge and as an appellate court judge. But yesterday, she was asked two questions that I found her answers to reveal something about her, and that is that she has very strong political feelings that she didn't want known because she feared they would interfere with her actually achieving the status of Supreme Court justice. And here's what they are. First, she was asked by Marsha Blackburn, Senator Blackburn, if she would define what a woman was. And her answer was, I cannot. And she said she could not because she wasn't a biologist. That was the reason she gave as to why she couldn't define what a woman was. Now, later in the day, when Senator Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, elaborated on that answer and tried to press Katanji Jackson Brown again for an answer to defining a woman, what she said was, I know I'm a woman and I know Senator Blackburn is a woman And I know the woman sitting in this room who I admire the most in the world, my mother is a woman, but I I can't define the word. And I wanted to jump into the laptop screen and be sitting in the chamber so I could say, well, I'm confused because if you can't define what a woman is, but you know that you're one, what is it that you think you are? And how is it that you perceive yourself? Because in order to call yourself a woman or anyone else, you have to have a concept and a definition of what that is. I wouldn't call myself a panda bear because I know what a panda bear is and I'm not one. 
but I would call myself a woman because I know what one of those is and I am one. It was very clear to me that the reason she didn't want to answer the question is because she knows that there is, we are in a moment in time in this country when it is cancelable, if that's a word, when it is boycottable, when it is frowned upon to suggest in any way, shape or form that someone who identifies as something other than what they biologically are is deemed to be the thing they identified with and needs to be respected and addressed accordingly. And so in deference to transgenderism, in deference to the LGBTQ plus one, or I'm a little short on the actual letters, but I think that's what it is. In deference to those communities, she didn't want to answer the question. Because if she defined a woman as she knows it to be, which is what she is, she would have infuriated the left, the political left, who don't want those distinctions made who want identifying as something to be equal to being that thing. The second issue that came up that was also very telling was that she was asked kind of where she stands on the 1619 Project. And if you don't know what that is, it was initially published by the New York Times and has since become a curriculum for schools pretty much across this country. And the 1619 Project basically says that the history of the United States doesn't begin in 1776. It begins when the first slaves were brought over from Africa, that we are, you know, it's part of critical race theory, or at least it goes hand in hand with critical race theory. And it basically is where we get this concept that we are a systemically racist nation. She was asked if she thought that teaching that in the schools was appropriate. In answering that question, she said, I'm not that familiar with the 1619 Project or critical race theory, and I really don't, you know, have a position on it. I don't think it's taught in the schools, but I, you know, I don't have a firm position because I'm not that familiar with it. And then the senator who asked her the question, and this also might have been Cruz, I'm not sure, or it could have been Hawley, I'm not sure who it was, held up four or five textbooks specifically written by critical race theory proponents, books that also spoke to the 1619 Project and what it was, textbooks that are currently being taught at a Georgetown private school, preparatory school. It is the school where she sits on the board of directors. And it was astonishing to me, the answer that she, it was also disingenuous, the answer that she gave when asked, these books are taught at the school that you sit on the board at. How could she say she was unfamiliar, number one, with critical race theory, or number two, whether or not the 1619 Project is being taught in schools? And her answer was, She thought when the question was asked, it was in reference to public schools. It was a shameful weaseling out of what was true. What was true is that she's incredibly familiar with the 1619 Project and critical race theory because she's written and spoken on both. And it was shameful because she knew that in the the very school that she sits on the board at, it was being taught. It was being promoted, both 1619 and critical race theory. She, in essence, lied by omission. As she lied by omission when she said she couldn't define a woman because she wasn't a a biologist. So for me, 
she is a disqualified candidate for the Supreme Court, although she's going to get voted in. The Senate will confirm her. And that's incredibly disturbing to me because she holds opinions that obviously do influence her. And she was willing to not only sublimate, but obfuscate those opinions for the purposes of getting where she wanted to go. And that's incredibly disturbing to me. It's deceitful and it's beneath someone who should be being considered for the highest court in the land. Now I'm going to segue here to something, I guess, completely unrelated. And that is, I've talked on the show before about the friends I have who are of different political persuasions and who are of different philosophical persuasions and who are, some of them are left brain and some of them are right brain people. Some of them are logical, rational lawyers and some are creative, intuitive mystics, whatever. I received an email this morning from one of my more conservative friends and the email had a link in it to a website that has a document on it that allegedly used to be on the internet, but has since been pulled. It was drafted, I believe, under the auspices of Secretary of Defense, I think during the Obama administration. And it's a strategy of war. It's a very long document. And it goes into what will happen to the nation should we get into something like a catastrophic world war, or I assume in war with Russia or China or perhaps North Korea, whatever. And as I began to look through this document, which is very governmental in its format, I think the index was something like 10 pages long. I saw all of the horrific things that would happen, the chaos, the panic, the lack of food. It went on and on and on. And I did not go on and on. I did not continue to read it. And in fact, I wrote back to my friend, in a responsive email and said to him, well, you know what? I'd actually like to read it to you because I don't want to paraphrase it. I actually want to tell you what I, what I wrote him. And I wrote him this, I know you mean well, but I see no purpose or good in disseminating this information. I assume that such strategic planning has existed from time immemorial among military strategists and only the scope has changed due to technology. Furthermore, if or when we should arrive at such a state of being, it will clearly be a world having gone mad and little in the way of foreknowledge or preparation will make much difference given our capacity now for devastating global destruction. I think that delving into the information such as this serves little purpose other than to escalate the level of fear, which is a sure way to feed and hasten chaos. And I signed it, your friend, Carol. I bring this up because I see things like this all the time. I receive things like this and it bothers me because, you know, I like to describe myself as an optimistic catastrophist. I know how to see the worst in every situation, but I've also spent a lifetime trying to cultivate the, um, the opposite of that, trying to find hope in every situation and the bright light in every situation. And every podcast I've ever done and every land-based radio show I've ever had, 
that's been the foundational principle of how I report the news or how I discuss political or philosophical or social issues. And that is what's the highest message? What can we take away from this that gives us hope and that doesn't mire us down in the immobilization that fear can create in, in a human? Well, that's what I think stuff like that is that I just got in that link. We are living in challenging times. We're living in transitionary times and transitionary times have happened before in human history. And I'm certain that there have been many flexion points in human history when people alive during that period either thought the end of the world was coming or that we were all surely going to go to hell, one or the other or both. I don't think it's productive to think that way because I look at nature. I look at the planet and while planets may come and go, it takes billions of years for that to happen. I believe that we have a future. I believe we have a future as a species and I believe that we have a future as a planet. And I believe that we have to be careful about both of those and respectful of both of those and realize that there are moments when we can make catastrophic decisions that don't serve us as individuals and certainly don't serve us as inhabitants of this planet, as a species in general. But I also like to believe that somehow either cooler heads prevail or the damage that we do to ourselves is not irreversible. And that while some of us may pay the price across the globe for ill-informed or ill-advised decisions, enough of us will survive to perpetuate and live to see another day and if necessary, start over again. I don't want to feed the fear. I don't want to feed the chaos. It's too easy now to do that. Number one, because of the technology. Number two, because of the ability to fake reality, whether it's vocal or visual, whether it's just really official looking false information, whether it's politically motivated, manipulated disinformation or misinformation, it's all possible now. So I've taken the position, and I guess I would encourage anyone who thinks for themselves to consider this position that you cannot trust what you hear or what you see. That we're living in a time when I think what the grander scheme is trying to get us to do is to go within and realize our own capacity for greatness and our own capacity for being able to discern what is the highest good and what isn't. Or if not the highest good, at least what moves us in a life-affirming, positive enhancing direction as opposed to immobilizing us with fear and paralyzing us so that we cannot act whether it's in our own interest or not in our own interest simply paralyzed with fear the chaos does that the deliberate chaos does that people don't like to live in perpetual uncertainty to some extent life is uncertain but the uncertainty we're experiencing now is orchestrated uncertainty. And there are players all over the world that are using that to continue the chaos, to continue the uncertainty, because they're actively trying to push whatever agenda it is they're pushing. I want to believe that those of us in the West and the leaders we have in the West 
have a somewhat better agenda that they're trying to market and push than, let's say, a Kim Jong-un or a Vladimir Putin or the Ayatollah from Iran or Xi from China. But who knows? Who knows? Because every human has the capacity for good and every human has the capacity for bad. And we know that there is a tremendous amount of corruption in our own political system. So I am very reluctant these days to say who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. There are some things that I can know for sure, as there are some things you can know for sure. You can know your own behavior. You can know your own choices. You can know if you're acting in a way that is in your best interest or you're acting in a way that is self-destructive. And to the extent that we're all willing to be that honest with ourselves, it's a lot easier to make the right choices. It's when we are also deceiving ourselves, separate from external deception or external manipulation, that we do the greatest harm. Because no one can force you to think or be or do anything other than what you consent to. No one. The most tortured political prisoners have been able to survive seemingly insurmountable conditions because they lived them one minute at a time, and no matter what was done to their body, they refused to relinquish what they knew to be true within themselves. We're not being physically tortured in the moment, but there is a kind of emotional abuse taking place globally, and it's very important that you find stability within yourself, that you find anchors in your own life that keep you from getting sucked in to the chaos and the fear and the negativity. So I encourage you that if you get emails from people, no matter what their political persuasion is, and those emails are fear-based, either delete them without looking at them or respond in some way as I did to my friend today, which was basically to say, this is not productive, this is fear-based, and I choose to proceed in my life differently. So thank you, but no thank you. You know, I'll close with this. There's a parable about the Buddha. The Buddha was quietly sitting in his home, meditating, and there was a knock at the door. Buddha opened the door, and there was someone the Buddha knew who began to berate and curse at and scream at the Buddha. And the Buddha let the person rant and rave. And when the person finished, the Buddha said, no, thank you. I cannot accept your gift. You'll have to take it with you when you leave. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Gold. I'll be back here again on Friday. And until I do, or until I am, think for yourself. Carol thanks you for spending your valuable time with her. It is her mission to empower you to remember how smart and capable you are. Be sure to check out Carol's website, carolgold.com. That's Carol with an E gold.com. Please leave a review and subscribe here so you'll be alerted to Carol's next podcast. Until then, above all else, remember, it's time to think for yourself.